You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. However it announced itself, the beginning of day in Provence was a gift celebrated in words and art for 2,000 years and more. No other sky was quite what this one was. Any time of year, any season, whether a late autumn's cold dawn or midday in drowsy summer among the cicadas, or when the knife of wind, the mistral, ripped down the Rhone Valley the way soldiers had so often come. The tolling of the cathedral bells drifted up the valley. There was no moon yet. It would rise later through the bright daylight, a waxing moon, one edge of it severed. Dawn was exquisite, memorable, almost a taste on the day a tale that had been playing out for longer than any records knew, began to arc like the curve of a hunter's bow or the arrow's flight and fall towards what might be an ending. Guy Gavriel Kay is the author of The Fiona of Our Tapestry, a fantasy trilogy comprised of The Summer Tree, The Wandering Fire, and The Darkest Road. He's also the author of Tagana and Beyond This Dark House, a book of poetry. He wrote the historically based novel The Last Light of the Sun, and his newest novel is Isabel. Welcome to the program, Guy. It's nice to be here, Rick. Fantasy and reality tend to intersect in your work in interesting and fashions that inform one another. In Fionavar, for example, we've got students who are transported to a world of Celtic fantasy brought to life. Tell me why you like to do that. I've spent a long time, Rick, trying to break down barriers or cross bridges or blur borders, whichever metaphor you want to work with, between uh, fantasy fiction and mainstream literary fiction. I've been arguing in my writing and in speeches on a soapbox I carry around with me that we spend too much time thinking about what slot or category a book belongs in as opposed to deciding, is it any good? And so the melding or the mixing of realistic characters and themes or ideas that I feel really genuinely relevant to readers today with motifs of magic and the supernatural that I use to sharpen the focus on those themes has been what I've been playing with or working with. I use either phrase depending on my mood and depending on how well the book is going uh, for a very long time now. For a very long time, your career as a fantasist had a really fascinating beginning. And I'd like you to tell us about this. You were educated as a lawyer, but you ended up working on a TV series. I worked on radio and television in Canada for a number of years. I was the principal writer and the associate producer for a series that dramatized famous criminal trials in Canadian history. So the it might seem a paradox for someone who ended up being identified as a fantasy novelist, but my joke at the time was that I heard more fantasies in a courtroom than I ever read in a book. While you were doing this, you met up with a, a rather famous gentleman. Tell us about this and what came of that. It's actually before the radio and television period in my life. I was a student at the University of Manitoba in Canada, 
And my family were closely acquainted with the family of Christopher Tolkien's wife. Christopher was the youngest son of J.R.R. Tolkien. We met a number of times over the years. When his father died in the winter of 1973, Christopher was named literary executor with the responsibility of putting together the papers that became the Silmarillion. He invited me to come to Oxford in the winter of 74, 75. It actually ran into the summer. And uh, work with him in what we call the editorial construction of those papers. That was really my beginning as a writer because it crystallized that year in a small village near Oxford, my own desire to write. And it also, in an extremely pragmatic way, brought my name to the attention of the book world. Readers didn't know who I was, but publishers did. Was this your first experience with fantasy fiction? My first experience working with it, certainly not my first experience reading it. That goes back to preteen years. Tell us a little bit about the process of editing Tolkien. How, how did that work? What, what state were the papers in, and how did you work with Christopher to bring them into the state that we see them in the, in the published version? I'm going to be an unsatisfactory guest here, Rick, because I've spent almost 30 years not talking about the mechanics and the nuts and bolts of the editing process. I'll give you this. One of the reasons, and here's why I take this perspective in part, one of the reasons I was invited to, to go over there and work on the project was because it was going to involve reading and working with Tolkien's letters and journals, diaries, uh, a lot of extremely personal material because he used to record his latest thoughts for what should be done with the Silmarillion, very often in letters to fans who'd asked him a question or in scribbled personal notes to himself. So these had to be read in the process of putting the book together. The idea of being able to trust someone to keep confidential his access to that material was, I think, central in the whole exercise of my being a part of the editing process. And it would feel to me seriously inappropriate, even 30 years later, for me to be talking at any great length about those materials or how the process was done. When you decided to write the Fiona Bar Tapestry, what brought you to that point? How, how far along the road to writing were you when you decided, I'm going to write a fantasy trilogy? It wasn't my first book. The first novel I wrote, which was never published, came right after I finished law school. I promised myself a year off before surrendering to the law, if I could put it that way. And I did the only practical thing you can do if you're growing up and studying in a Canadian winter, and I went to a Greek island. And I settled in on the south coast of Crete and uh, spent half a year writing a novel that was a book about North Americans backpacking in Europe, a resolutely contemporary novel. And I came back and found an agent, and he sent it off to New York and Boston, London, and, Rick, I got the most extraordinarily generous rejection letters. I was 24 years old. I was not disappointed or cast down. Or, I didn't feel rejected. I felt really exalted by the exceptionally enthusiastic tone with which a variety of editors were saying, we don't think we can make money out of this, but Kay can write. We'd like to see the next thing he does. And somewhere in the next year or two, 
the germ of the idea for the Fianavar Tapestry came to me, and I started working on the summer tree. Tell us about the pre-work that goes into creating your novels. Is there, do you just sit down and start at word one, or do you start to create the world within which you'll be working before you even start to create the novel itself? The latter, but it's not so much creating the world, it's discovering and researching it, because for the last half a dozen books, beginning with Tigana in 1990, I've been cutting more and more closely to real history with a fantasy spin or twist on my approach to real history. So the background process for me is really extensive research into the periods that I want to evoke, very much like any historical fiction novelist will do. So for Tugana, it was Renaissance Italy. For Song for Arbonne, it was medieval Provence. More recently, Last Light of the Sun was based on the Vikings and Anglo-Saxons before the Norman Conquest. And I usually spend a solid year reading, corresponding with people, very often ending up with friendships among the academics who have made it their life's work to know these periods. That's the fun part, Rick. That's the part where I have absolutely no responsibilities. I'm just learning stuff. I'm making notes. I'm reading books. I'm talking to interesting people. And then somewhere along the line, a nagging voice pops up at the back of my head and says, you have to do something with this. You better start writing. And I say, shut up and go away. And I can get away with that for a month or two after that starts. And then the voice gets louder, and I realize I've got a book to write. Tell us a little bit about some of this research you've done. Do you go to first sources, to the primal materials, when when you're talking about Byzantium, for example? Do you actually, did you, do you travel to the places you write about? I do travel. I've often traveled, and I've often written and lived in the, in the settings that I'm evoking. I did that for Tigana. We lived in Tuscany, and it's based on... Italian Renaissance. Wow, that sounds rough, living in Tuscany. It was very hard. <laughs> and you know what? It was, it was uh, the line that I emerged from that, from that winter with was to say that some writers may be able to evoke olive groves and vineyards when they're looking out at a streetcar going by, and I have a lot of admiration for them, but I'll do it better if I'm looking out at olive groves and vineyards. <laughs> so I have indeed traveled to the, to the settings that I've wanted to evoke in the books. With Isabel, for example, I wrote it in, in Provence, in and around the city of Aix-en-Provence, which is the contemporary setting of the book. I don't think it's mandatory because I don't think anything is mandatory in writing fiction. I always worry about writers who tell would-be writers or, or readers that this is how it's done. I think it could be done a stunning variety of ways. That whatever works for you is the way you should be writing. But for me, I have found in the past that immersing myself in the ambience I'm trying to evoke for the reader will let me do it better. Your earlier novels and series tended to focus on more Baroque and complex and richer and more civilized civilizations. I mean, the difference in many ways between Provence, troubadour era Provence, and now is it's not that great. I mean, there's cities, there's people, there's jobs, there's middle class. There's, but with The Last Light of the Sun, you ratcheted back to a time that was not quite so pleasant. What made you decide to do that? That's, that's a good question and an interesting observation. First of all, I think you're right. I did do that. 
The short answer, Rick, is that I hate repeating myself, that it may not be a smart thing to do to be a moving target for an author. I think commercially in our world today, probably the smartest commercial thing you could do is find something that people seem to like and keep dishing it out until they get tired of it. And that's why we have so many sequels in Hollywood, why so many writers in any genre or form find something that clicks and then just keep doing variants of the same thing. With Last Light of the Sun, I realized that I'd written, as you just suggested, several novels based on exceptionally sophisticated, decadent, worldly civilizations. Uh, Byzantium, Renaissance Italy, medieval Provence, I should say, Spain before the Reconquest. All of these are decadent, lush, courtly environments. And it struck me as an interesting challenge to see how I could handle a place more to the north. I called it my northern book, where the struggle to survive is so much at the edge, so much the central issue. The characters don't have time to think about courtly love or troubadour music or mosaics on church domes. They're trying to beat back the invader and carve out a life for themselves and their families. So it's a harder-edged book. You're absolutely right. So you were living in a mud hut on a hill in the hills of Wales when you wrote this one? Well, you have to understand that I'm married, and so other factors kick in as to whether or not you can truly follow the realism of your thoughts. With this novel, The Last Light of the Sun, I want to explore this idea of how you fantasize around history. It's a really interesting concept because in many ways your novels could be just lumped right in with historical novels, and in many ways they get filed with fantasy novels. On the bookshelf stores, you're going to tend to find them with the fantasy novels. Mm -hmm. But I think there's actually more history in them than there is fantasy. Is is that the... uh, Good estimation? I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that's been a, if you will, a hallmark of my career is that people have spent an inordinate amount of energy trying to figure out which slot to put me into. What pleases me most is that whatever slot they end up deciding the books belong in, they seem to enjoy them. I've got an exceptionally intense loyal readership around the world in 22 languages now. There's, there's readers who have somehow found the books wherever they're shelved and found them uh, important to their lives, to their reading lives, and sometimes even to the way they think about the present day. With Last Night of the Sun, my previous novel, to answer your question about melding history with fantasy, it struck me that so often when we write historical fiction, when we read it, we feel a little smug and patronizing about the beliefs of people in the past. Can you believe it? The Celts thought that if they ran counterclockwise around an oak tree at sunset, something would happen. Isn't that cute? Or the Romans or Byzantines scribbled curses on wax tablets and dropped them in an open grave. Isn't that silly? We have this reflexive amused attitude to the misguided beliefs of the past. And it struck me with Last Light of the Sun that it would be really interesting to do a book where the world was as the characters of the novel believed it to be. That characters of the pre-conquest, Great Britain, the Norse, 
Danish Viking raiders believed certain things about fairy and the supernatural. It was intensely a part of their lives, and it struck me that I might make the modern reader shed or shake a little of that patronizing attitude to these people if the world they moved through was as they believed it. So there is a component of the supernatural and fairy in that book. I don't do it in every book. Some critics, some reviewers actually thought that I was working on a through line, a gradual diminishment of the element of magic or the supernatural in my books, and it was never so. One thing that, that strikes me is central to many of your books is religion in its many forms and formats. With, in particular, with, with The Last Light of the Sun, you just have a collision of so many different belief forms. So tell me, and we have the same collisions right now, here and now, and they're pretty important, pretty scary. So tell us a little bit about how the eerie and scary forms of religion in the current day inform your visions of religion in history. Rick, you're making it easy for me because you're half answering the question as you ask it to me. <laughs> um, my overarching thesis in my novels for, from the beginning has had to do with the way in which I think the past doesn't leave us, that we need to understand the roots from which we've emerged in order to understand where we're going today. Conflict for any novelist is going to be the seedbed from which he or she draws their story. We're drawn to conflict. Religion, cultures in transition from one set of beliefs to another, cultures in conflict because one set of religious beliefs is colliding, as you suggest, with another, these will be the most volatile, engrossing kinds of settings in which to place a book, and they will echo, again as you suggested, what we're living with and going through today. So for both these reasons, you'll often find belief systems in collision or in evolution in my novels. When One thing you've talked about, you've brought this up a couple times, and I want to pursue this idea of how novels set in a fantastic version of our history have something to do with today. T tell us how that works, because it's not, for many people, it's not intuitive, but I think when you read the novel, you have that experience. I think you're right again. It's not an intuitively obvious idea, but it's one that I've been basing my career on, so I better be right or I'm in trouble. <laughs> Let me give you this uh, angle on it. When we read a Grimm Brothers fairy tale, and we read that the only daughter of a fisherman walked down to the strand or the youngest son of a woodcutter went into the forest. By the nature of folktale, by the nature of fantasy, we are that only daughter or that youngest son. That's the point of the story. It's telling us something about the human condition in a fairy tale, folktale, handed down wisdom form that is shared among the community. What I extract from that is that fantasy, the use of the fantastic, has this wonderful power to universalize the story, make it more relevant for the reader, make it easier for the reader to apply it to his or her own life 
and time than if the book is nailed down as taking place in the England of Henry VIII or the Italy of the Borgia princes. It's not just about a given time and place. It extracts the themes and ideas from that time and place and shows how they're still with us today. And the fantasy setting is what makes that easier for the author and the reader to have that dialogue about the past and the present. When you're using fantasy to, I guess the word I use is externalize um, these kind of inner thoughts of ourselves for, for your books, uh, are you thinking of specific things in, in our present that you want to discuss? Like when, when you sat down to write The Last Light of the Sun, was there something happening in our world at that moment when you were writing it that made you think, I want to write about Vikings and, and, and Celts battling it out in the mud? I don't think it's been that one-to-one, that direct correspondence for me. I think that what's more likely to happen with me is that the more I learn about periods of the past, which could be exceptionally strange, the past is a far country, the more I learn about it, I realize that the strangeness is also married to an element of consistency in motifs and themes that keep recurring. Let me give you an example. The best example for me about what we're talking about is actually Tugana, which began this linking of history with fantasy for me. Tugana is about the use of magic to symbolize as a metaphor the technique that conquering peoples have used since time immemorial to erase the cultural identity of the people they've subjugated. They ban the language, they ban the books, they burn the books, they tear down the statues. They know all through history that the way to fully subjugate a conquered people is to take away their sense of themselves as a unique entity. This is what Cromwell did in Ireland. This is what England did in Wales when they banned the speaking of Welsh in schoolyards. You can read Llewellyn's How Green Was My Valley and remember that. This is what the Japanese did in Korea at the beginning of the 20th century when they banned the Korean language. Newspapers could keep publishing, but in Japanese. This is what Mao did after the Long March in China. Chinese history began with the Long March. This is what Stalin did. Conquerors everywhere have used this technique. What I thought would be interesting in Tigana was to show it as a universal was not to write a book about a specific time and place, but to write a book about the technique and use magic to telescope and sharpen the idea of how this is done. And Rick, when I'm in Croatia, in Poland, I just came back from Russia, if I say the first question I'm asked, I might be exaggerating, but one of the first questions every time Somebody will put up their hand, and they will say, back when you wrote Tigana, were you writing about us? It happens all the time. One of the, the powers of, of fantasy fiction is that kind of universal connection. And I want to talk to you about an aspect of it. Fantasy is a literary form. It, it's kind of in a, a, a dual phase now, because a lot of 
really beautiful fantasy. For example, The Lovely Bones is, you know, hailed as literary. And then there's another whole segment of fantasy that, that somewhat is treated as, you know, disposable page-turner fiction. But I think there's a, a, a mythic element of fantasy. So I'd like you to talk about combining mythic and archetypal insights with the kind of entertaining plots that you can have in fantasy to make it like something that you really want to read. Well, let me begin by addressing the first comment you made. First of all, you're right. Again, you're doing very well today. <laughs> the, uh, the point I make about that is that this literary versus what I call the popcorn book or the, the, the beach read book on holiday, it's not remotely limited to or unique to the fantasy genre or any other genre. We're not going to say that Philip Roth writes in the debased genre of contemporary fiction just because the bestseller <laughs> list carries popcorn books set in contemporary times. Nobody would think to say that. But when you're talking about something that can be classified as genre, all too often the public face of the genre will be the fast, casual popcorn entertainment and the more serious works, which by definition, the better works will be rare. Rick, excellence is always rare. That's why we value it. So that would be my first response, that I think there's an overfocus on the idea of fantasy as having this extreme of quality or ambition. I think all forms of art have this. Sturgeon's Law. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. 90% will not be good. That's why we value the 10%. The second part of your question, you're forcing me to long answers because you're asking good questions, had to do with the mixing of literary ambition with a page-turner. Mm-hmm. I've always argued, again, my whole career, this is my bid for an aphorism, my, my bold stroke to get into Bartlett's with a quote. I've always said that good novels involve interesting things happening to interesting people. Go ahead, write that down. Submit it to the Bartlett's people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the best-known page-turning pop bestsellers will almost always have interesting things happening. And most of the time have those interesting things happen to amazingly uninteresting characters. The best of literary fiction will tend to turn on closely observed, empathically understood characters with all too often uncompelling narratives driving those characters. I've never seen it as either or. I've never seen it as the game theorists would call it a zero-sum game. It seems to me our challenge, our task, our responsibility as novelists is to try to offer both the interesting things happening and the interesting people that they're happening to. I want you awake until three in the morning racing through my book to find out what happens next, but I also want you two years later seeing something on the news, reading it in the newspaper, saying, you know, that reminds me of something I read in that book by Kay two years ago. I want both sides of that equation. Let's talk a little bit. Oh, one, one thing that, that it strikes me about your work is you're, you're Canadian. You have a, a different 
worldview, I think, than, than some of the other uh, writers in, in the fantasy genre and, and just writers in general. So tell us a little bit about how do you think that being Canadian informs your writing in, in a way that's that's detectable? Detectable? Well, you've just thought you detected it, so maybe you've answered your question again. I'm hesitant to subscribe to the uh, national identifying characteristics idea. I remember about a year ago, Locust Magazine, which is like the Bible of fantasy and science fiction world on a monthly basis, was doing a Canadian literature roundup and they asked a number of authors to do a piece for them on uh, what defined Canadian fantasy and science fiction. And I know them all very well and I liked them all very much and I declined because I didn't want to get into trying to nail down a national voice. I'm not so sure you could identify an American voice in fantasy or science fiction without people popping up every 30 seconds to say, what about so-and-so? Isn't so-and-so's work a discrepancy, a divergence from that national voice you're finding? The one thing I'll say is that Canadians, by virtue of not being center stage on the world stage, may have a tendency to a wider perspective, a more observant view of the large picture than those writers emerging from a culture that has been center stage. I think those writers on center stage will either be buying in to the center stage or actively and consciously rebelling against the center stage status. Canadians aren't caught up in either of those, and that may give us a slightly different niche. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit, <clears throat> set up for us, your new novel, Isabel. It's, it's a fascinating novel and something of a departure for you, isn't it? It was a departure in certain ways, and the publishers have, I think, cleverly, certainly the sales and the early going suggest that they were clever, and I hate to go on air and be forever recorded as having said that publishers could be clever, but it looks like I've just done it. The, uh, the departure quality consists of the fact that Isabel is a contemporary novel. It's set here and now, if here could include Provence, the south of France, and it's certainly very much now with iPods and JPEGs and minivans on the roads. The, that's the departure. What's not a departure about it is that I remain fascinated by the ways in which history, the past, continue to ripple through the events of the present day. Isabel is about a North American family who are on a six-week photo shoot. The father is a world-famous photographer. He's over there shooting a coffee table book with his team, which includes his son, teenager, Ned, and they stumble into the ongoing recurrence of a romantic triangle with roots in the original collision of the Celtic worldview there and the Greco-Roman worldview that first began to settle in Provence. One of the things that I found really fascinating about this book was the uh, what I presume to be the actual historical backdrop of the battle that was fought in 
Aix, Aix en Provence. Tell us a little bit about that battle because it, it was really a, a pivotal point for world civilization in many ways. Certainly for Western civilization. There are a number of those pivotal points, but this is one of them. This is one of the least known hinge moments in history. We could find so many. The Spanish Armada is another one. If the Armada had somehow managed to conquer England, there's an entirely different course to European history after the 16th century. What happened 2,100 years ago in the south of France was that an extremely large migration of Celtic and Germanic tribes was moving out of Central Europe down through the south of France, and they were looking at Rome. At that time, we're talking about 120 B.C., Rome was not the Rome we later think of it as the, as the empire, the world dominator. Rome had not even left the Italian peninsula, really. Provence is called Provence because it was the first province of Rome. That's how it got its name. It was the first time the Romans left the peninsula. This massive migration of Celts and Germanic tribes were heading for Rome, and there was nothing between them and, and, and Italy. If they'd gotten there, Rome would not have evolved and developed to become what it did and dominated shape so much of Western civilization following. They were stopped by a significantly smaller Roman army, led by a general named Marius, in a battle that took place just east of the modern city of Aix-en-Provence at the foot of Mont Saint-Victoire, which was named for that, Mount Saint-Victory. It was named for that victory 2,100 years ago. And I won't get into the tactics of the battle. That starts to get too specific. But this significantly outnumbered Roman army slaughtered the, the Celtic tribes to the point where historians generally are of the view that more than 200,000 corpses were left rotting on the battlefield after the uh, name of the modern town in that location is Pourier in French, which means putrefaction. It's, it's really an interesting point. And one of the, when I read this novel, I have never read a novel that had so much time in it, that was so haunted by time. Time is ever-present in this novel, and you have just a million different variations on it, recognitions of it, observations of it. And it really does have this feeling of the past bubbling through to the present. But first, let's talk about your teenage protagonist, Ned, because he's very well rendered. And one of the things I, I thought as I read this, I thought, boy, this kind of reminds me of the book Aragon. Have you read that? It's, it's Haven't a, read it. He was, it was written largely by, by a kid who was 15 years old. And you capture that same kind of feel that that... Aragon captures. I mean, you capture that feel of the of a 15-year-old boy really exceptionally well. And you said you were on vacation in Florence with your children? Are they... Are well, it wasn't vacation, but are, it, was, it, was, it was a working year. But yes, working. I have children that age. But let me, let me put this to you, Rick, as a thought. Why is it more distinctive or interesting if a novelist could get a 15-year-old boy than if the novelist gets a 70-year-old widow grieving for her husband. 
Why is it more unexpected or distinctive? You might think it should be easier for me because once upon a time, and maybe a long way back, I was a 15-year-old kid, male, North American, and that's what Ned is. I find it interesting because a lot of interviewers are seizing on the idea that I seem to have gotten a plausible teenager. And I'm, I'm emphasizing the word a because it would strike me as silly to try to do the plausible teenager because 15-year-olds run the gamut of personality as much as 35- and 65-year-olds do. The idea of a typical anything kind of bores me. I'm more interested in the idiosyncratic, individualized character of any age group. In a funny way, shaping Ned plausibly was less challenging to me than many of the other characters I've worked with. I think what's making it interesting for readers and interviewers is that because of the contemporary setting, readers feel more capable of forming their own judgment on the character. I know 15-year-old. I am a 15-year-old. I was a 15-year-old. I'm raising a 15-year-old. I can evaluate that more easily than a historical figure because I'll give the author credit for the research and the invention of a historical character, but I'll watch him closely when he starts talking about contemporary music. <laughs> right. And one thing I think you do very well in this novel is uh, deal with contemporary technology. You deal with it when you talk about cell phones, iPods, JPEGs, email. Uh, you see this a lot in novels these days, obviously because it's part of our culture, but it, it tends to call attention to itself. And I think one thing you do really well is to make it seem natural, a part of the, these people's lives. And did you have to ratchet back when you were writing about this technology? And, and That's say, an interesting way of putting it. To a certain degree, you become aware that you want to ground the story in today as squarely as possible in order to emphasize the transition the characters need to make to come to terms with a mythic historical story that is bubbling up, as you put it, erupting into the present day. I've wanted to work with that contrast of modern language, and yet the characters from the past need to obviously speak with a different diction or they're unconvincing. One of the things I did to make it easier for me and the reader to make that transition was to isolate my characters a little bit. This isn't taking place in downtown San Francisco or Chicago or Toronto. It's taking place in the countryside in the south of France. The characters are North Americans, and they are already off their home turf. They're already displaced somewhat from their comfort zone. And in that kind of displaced setting, it felt more natural to have them confront and deal with a further displacement is what you mentioned, the idea of the past coming forward. They're already geographically elsewhere. It seemed to me that that would facilitate making them, if you will, temporally elsewhere. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the other characters in here as well. Y you do quite well with your women characters. Uh, Melanie, 
um, Kate Wenger, the, the the mother, and, and this is a really interesting. This this is, I, ha- I have to ask you. Um, it's very daring. I thought it was pretty daring to have a novel about a family where the mother is like absent for a, half the book. And so tell us a little bit about making that decision and why you decided to do that and, and where she is. Isabel is a book that I gave myself the challenge, and it's obviously the reader's task or opportunity to find out whether I met the challenge or not for them. I set myself the challenge of working with the idea of the past on two different levels. One is what we've been skating around in our discussion here, the, the, the deep past. Romans and Greeks and Celts running through the Middle Ages, the presence of themes from the past that bubble up into the present day, what I call the macro scale. But it interested me to think about how when you and I talk about the past, we're so often referring to our own past, our own history. Somebody will say something, I I used to be in love with her, but that's history. We talk about our family history. We talk about or think about the feud between our grandfather and his brother that's the reason our uncles don't speak to each other. The events of our own life or our family life, which is the point I'm getting to, in the past are just as significant for how we deal with the world as those larger macro-scaled elements. Ned's mother is absent for a reason that emerges in the book and has to do with her own attitude to her family history, to her sister's behavior 25 years ago, her response to it. Ned's mother, Megan, is doing heroic things. She's with Doctors Without Borders in the Sudan, as the novel opens. She's doing heroic things for complex reasons. And that's something that from my very first books over 20 years ago intrigued me in shaping character. I'm bored with the person who does a heroic thing because if he does it, he's going to be kicked out of the Prince's Guild or something like that. I'm interested in the character who does heroic things or sometimes unheroic things for complex mixtures of reasons that I try to tease out for the reader. That engages me as a writer. I hope it engages readers to the same level. Well, let's talk about how the past bubbles up in this book a little bit without... I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but you do create a really fascinating uh, love triangle here and one thing, this book, when you look at it now, the, the finished product, is you look at it and you think, well, this looks like a piece of literary historical fiction. That would be my first guess when I saw it. It's, it's a literary historical fiction, maybe a fantasy, but it looks more on the, on the literary side. But really, in, in a sense, on one hand, this book is perfectly appropriate as a young adult book. And I'm really, I'm actually somewhat surprised that it was not published as such because there's such a, a run on those books now. It'd be perfect. I mean, boy, th- your kids can read it. They can learn history, and, and it's an exciting book to read as well. But the other um, spin on this book is it has a kind of what's called a paranormal romance. Are you familiar with this kind of mm-hmm. this genre? And, and this is also, this is the haute literature version of paranormal romance. And I'm wondering how much of those, these kind of, more debased genres, as we'll call them. Well, this is, you know, Rick, we can add up the list. We could set the line forms to the left as to how many (laughs) slots or categories you could try to fit Guy Gabriel K's books into. Right. 
I think as far as young adult is concerned, one of the reasons it's not a YA book is because the motivations of the characters and the interplay of the generations is, in fact, very adult in its underpinning and its setting up of how and why people do what they do. I also, for what it's worth, have a bit of a soapbox on YA fiction because my firm belief is that a bright 12 or 13-year-old can read anything. You That's get to right. be 12, 13, 14, you can read Dickens and Dostoevsky. And we're actually in the process of carving out this little ghetto for 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds where there is a section of a bookstore that is just appropriate for you. And I worry a little bit that kids, young adults, are being narrowed in the range of what they could be reading or the taste that they're cultivating because of the YA phenomenon. Uh, it's not, a, it's not a, a crusade for me, but it's a little question mark in my mind about that. And, and paranormal romance? The idea here is that in this part of the world was one of those collisions of cultures we talked about earlier in the interview. The Greek traders arrived in the Bay of Marseille in the south of France about 2,500 years ago, had their first encounter with the Celts. The Greeks were succeeded by the Romans. They actually called them in a little later for military support, these traders. And eventually, the Romans conquered and dominated the Celts. We know that story from Julius Caesar conquering Gaul, except for the little village where Asterix lived. And uh, we are part of the argument of the book, Isabel, underneath the story I watch you up till three in the morning reading. We're still living with that divergence of worldview here in the West. We have it today in so many ways when we talk about the split between people who read fantasy and people who read political biography. When we talk about the left brain, right brain models of human thinking to Bono's ideas. When we think about how some people are poets and some are mathematicians. This split of consciousness, of awareness of how we look at the world is so fundamentally with us today, whether you're an environmentalist or an industrialist. You might say that this is a legacy of the conflict that began to work itself out when the Romans and the Celts collided in the south of France. So you asked me a little earlier about how history does history's resonance strike me in specific ways about modern times. This would be an aspect of that in Isabel. We're still living with the difference between the Roman worldview and the Celtic worldview. It can be oversimplified. It could be oversimplified down to river dance and building bridges. And neither is true. The Romans were deathly superstitious. And the Celts have a legacy of extraordinarily, extraordinarily cerebral art. So none of it can be boiled down or should be boiled down to gross oversimplification. But there is an essence to the way we think about one worldview and the other, and it's still with us today. And it plays out nicely in the romance here. At one point, uh, Isabel says, eyes of one, voice of the other. Yeah. And, and I'm presuming the eyes would be the Celt. 
and the voice would be the Roman. Do you want me to tell you? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, why not? What I really like, Rick, is the way in which books are a dialogue. What I really like. When I was younger, it made me nervous because I would write something and I thought it would be crystal clear what I meant and I would start hearing from readers or reading reviewers who had an entirely different take on what I had thought was, was crystal clear. The dialogue nature is brought home so much by scenes of romance or eroticism or violence or meditation. One person's thoughtful reflection upon history is another's, get over it already, Kay, let's get back to the action. (laughs) Somebody's deeply moving romantic passage is another's, get over it, Kay, let's get back to the action. And that's very much the nature of the author-reader interaction. The reader brings their taste, their history, their mood that week to the book they pick up. Are you stressed at work? Are your kids driving you crazy? Or are you on holiday and relaxed? That's going to affect how you read what you're picking up. Tell us a little bit. One of the things that this novel does feature is a just wonderful set piece in the middle of the book. And I'd like to talk to you about how you built that set piece and how you work through the elements of your themes and your characters and then put all that into action, into a piece that the reader just absolutely sees. And did you go to those places, those specific places where you set that, that scene? I was absolutely there several times. That's the, uh, that's the ruins called Entremont of the Celtic city fortification above the modern city of X. The Romans took the view that they needed to destroy that hill fortification before they felt safe building their own city in the valley below. And they did do that. The ruins of the Celtic village of Montremont are enormously evocative, in part, Rick, because they're usually almost empty. You can't go very far in Provence without running into serious crowds and enormously uh, touristy attractions because they're fabulous. But Entremont, for whatever reason, isn't on the major tourist track. And so whenever I went there, and I was there at least half a dozen times with a camera and a notebook, uh, I was almost always alone or very close to that. And it allows you space to, if you will, rebuild the ruins in your imagination. That scene is the setting for, I suppose, the centerpiece of the book, the turning point of the book. And I want to share your caution about not giving things away right. for the reader by discussing it too specifically. I hate spoilers. No, I have I do too as well. Uh, some reviewers don't. There's a there's a a strand of critics and reviewers that would take the view that I can't discuss a book if I'm not discussing the climax and the ending because I can't say whether the author succeeded with it. I think especially when a book is new and Isabel is just out in the United States 10 days ago, 12 days ago, uh, when a book is new, I think it's almost a responsibility to to the listeners and then to the prospective readers not to take away the pleasure for them of finding out in the book 
what these climaxes that we're talking about are. Tell us a little bit. You you have two of your books that have been optioned for movies. You're actually working on the screenplay for The Long Light of the Sun. Yeah, Last Light of the Sun. Last Light of the Sun. Uh, the uh, producers who are uh, Robert Chartoff and Ted Ravenette. Uh, Chartoff is best known for Raging Bull and all the Rocky movies. He and Ravenette have previously optioned and are developing Scott Card's Ender's Game and Speaker for the Dead. So they're, uh, and in fact, they, they gave, uh, Scott a long leeway to try to do the script himself. And they have compounded their felony by recklessly asking me to do the adaptation of Last Night of the Sun. Uh, and I recklessly said yes. Uh, my joke currently is to say, why should I let someone else screw up my book when I could screw it up myself? <laughs> With uh, the other project, which is a little further along the line, uh, Warner Brothers optioned The Lions of Alvisan some time ago for uh, the director Edward Zwick, who did The Last Samurai and Blood Diamond and Glory and Legends of the Fall. Uh, Zwick would have been on my own fantasy A-list shelf of possible directors for my work because I'm a great admirer of what he does. That one's being produced for Warner's by a team of people, but the lead producer is Kathy Schulman, who won the Oscar last year for Crash. So on that project, uh, I'm really lucky to have some exceptionally talented, committed people who flat out love the book and want to see if it can translate to film. Are you working on a new novel yet, or are you focusing on the screenplay? Well, the... I'm on the screenplay right now because, and this is, I actually resisted for a long time saying yes. Uh, Ted Ravenette in particular is a very persuasive man, and he was pushing me to take on the script for a while. And uh, my film agent in Los Angeles was saying the same thing. I was hiding behind my literary agent who was saying, no, 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 you don't want to get involved with Hollywood. You don't want a second career as a scriptwriter. You're a novelist. Don't do it. And I was saying what she said. And then about two months ago, Linda, my literary agent, was musing in her office when we were having a coffee together. And she said, you know, you never start another book right after you finish one. You know how you work. You need to let the last book recede from you, which is true. You need to spend a long time reading and researching, which is true. Why don't you use this time to take on the script? And I said, et tu, Brute, what are you doing to me? <laughs> and so with no one to hide behind anymore, I ended up saying yes to the invitation to work on the script. So that's what I'm doing this winter. That's what I expect to be working on through the spring. Uh, what will follow turns very much on whether I screw up my book or on whether I deliver a working script that can be taken to the studios. And the timetable for the next novel will flow in part from that. We've been speaking with Guy Gabriel Kay. His new novel is Isabel. Thank you for joining me, Guy. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, 
and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.